A reading from Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 to 9. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness and those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you've hidden your face from us. You've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I chose the right reader for that passage. <laughs> thank you, and thank you to our musicians for the beautiful worship music this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful, convicting, hopeful passage. We pray that in it we would contemplate and revel in not only the first coming of our Lord, but his second. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Christmas is a season of unveiling and appearances and unwrapping. Uh, we open gifts and doors open to see what's inside and, and who's behind. You know this if you go to pick people up at the airport or you watch others and someone, a loved one, comes out the door and everyone's excited or you come out the door to be greeted by your relatives. These kinds of unveilings during this season are all faint, mild hints of the central thrust of this passage. It is the people of God longing for God to show up, to appear, to walk through the door, as it were, to do a spectacular, magnificent thing. Our passage conceives of God in heaven, hidden behind a vast curtain, and the people pray, oh, that you would rip the heavens apart, that you would come down into this world, God, and make yourself known. And dear friends, don't we long for God to rend the heavens, to mend this broken world, to, to judge what is wrong, to finish the restoration project in our lives? To bring justice, to bring peace. 
My daughter Paige lives in Santa Monica, and she often goes to a Target up there, and she texted us a few months ago, Liz and me, and she said, well, as I am buying things, there's some thieves that are pulling off merchandise off the shelves, putting them into bags, and leaving while I have to pay. And she also said she stepped over three homeless men in the aisles who were zombied out. And she wrote, I, I do this all the time, but it makes me really anxious. Oh, come and rend the heavens, oh God. We are seeing every day accounts of riots, even this week, and moral mayhem in which people call what is evil good and good evil. There is sexual chaos. There is white-collar crime where crypto investors wipe out people's savings. There was a terrorist attack just, I think, yesterday against worshiping Christians in the Philippines. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So we pray this from where we are now, but the context for them was looking at the Babylonian siege against the southern tribes, the two southern tribes of Israel in 587. And it contemplates the people of God waiting for and yearning for the Lord to restore. And yet there was devastation. Earlier in chapter uh, 63, verse 19, it talked about their adversaries trampling down their sanctuary. A terrorist attack against the people of God in their place of worship. And so on this first Sunday of Advent, Christians around the world tend to look forward not only to the first coming of Jesus, but the second coming, when He will bring His justice, when He will make all things right. And we sit in this time, this in-between time, aware of our longing, aware of the broken world that we live in. Tish Harrison Warren has written, before we celebrate the birth of Christ, we remember the pain of labor. We wait with this whole longing world with all of creation groaning for redemption. We face the darkness before we celebrate the dawn. O come, O come, Emmanuel, come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits with thine advent here. We see in this passage that with the Israelites, we long for God to set things right. That's our first theme. We could put it in a different way as one translation expresses the first verse. If only God, you would tear the heavens open and come down. If only you would make your name known to your adversaries that the nations might tremble at your presence. This is speaking of a theophany or the showing, the revelation of God and appearance of God. And the language here is it talks about the the fire kindling, boiling the water, and, and even creation feeling the coming of God. It is referring to previous manifestations of God's presence. You can think of Exodus 19 at the foot of Mount Sinai when the law that shows God's holiness, that calls for the people of God, to follow after him. When that was given, there was a demonstration of God's power in nature. There was thunder and lightning and smoke enshrouding and 
Mount Sinai, an awesome display of the revelation of God's holiness. And so in this passage, there is judgment against sin, against waywardness, against the breaking of God's law that was given at Mount Sinai. And what it tells us here, and it does throughout the Bible, is that the breaking of God's command, commands breaks the world. And it causes so much heartache and heartbreak. And so this is speaking against, in some sense, the adversaries of God. I saw just this week a comedian that, that was mocking the birth of Christ. Mocking. Verse 5b says, Behold, you were angry and we sinned. So that's interesting. It goes from the world to our situation. Friends, in so many ways, the Bible has marks of divine authorship, and this is one of them. So many ancient texts in different cultures, Roman, Egyptian, and so forth, I, I learned this in a my secular college uh, history classes, actually. Those passages speak of their own rulers and themselves as exemplary and their enemies as awful. But the Hebrew scriptures so clearly state that the problem isn't just with the pagan nations, it's with we ourselves, with us ourselves. And so as it critiques the nations, it then turns the spotlight, this passage does, on Israel, on God's people. You see, sin is not just out there, and we know this. It is in here, of course. It is in here. And so Isaiah says that we, too, deserve judgment, and that we must honestly face ourselves. So notice his powerful language. It is so... Uh, poetic and moving. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We are ceremonially unclean. Now, this is a common um, passage, and it's referred to often. I want to say, when we are in Christ, if you're a believer, God does accept us. He does accept our obedience. It is always imperfect. It is always tainted by sin but he delights in the deeds of his children. He is pleased with us as we try to honor him on account of the goodness of Jesus. Nevertheless, <laughs> verse 6, this idea of polluted garments, it tells us, it reminds us of the universal taint of sin. It's sometimes been put this way, that... that Sin is like um, blue dye that is put in a glass of water. And, and some people maybe have a lot of blue dye, maybe more than others, but we all have it. And every part of the water, the, the water in the glass, is therefore blue. And so even our righteous acts, even the good things that we do, are tinged with sin, are, are tangled up with self-interest. Now, what is some evidence of this? I, I shared this a few years ago on Christmas Eve, and I'm, I'm more certain this is proof of original sin. When your families review the Christmas pictures that you might send out to everyone, who is the first person you look at in the picture? You! It happened again this year. <laughs> Even so much, I'm going to take it further than I did a few years ago, you veto the picture in which you don't look good. 
And then so the family votes on those things and debates those things. We are so easily um, oriented to ourselves and our own self-interest. Or, think of it this way, the best things we often do are often accompanied, you know, we do them rightly on the outside, but they can be accompanied with grumbling. I, I saw a cartoon, I think it was from the New Yorker a few years ago, I, I couldn't find it, but it went something like this. Um, I love doing the dishes, it was a, I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but it was a married couple. I love doing the dishes, it gives me an opportunity to resent you. <laughs> and I, I think sometimes in family life, let's be honest, we know that. Years ago, I was at a preaching conference led by um, the Anglican uh, British pastor, Dick Lucas, and he's actually had an immense influence, had an immense influence on uh, Pastor Tim Keller. And um, he was there with a number of young pastors, and I think at the time he was probably in his mid-70s, and with this great authority and, and British accent <laughs> that I won't try to duplicate, he paused and he said, kind of going off script, he says, sometimes I think I'm getting worse as I age. But then he said, no, I'm just becoming more aware of my sin and my need for a Savior. And so Isaiah says that we all fade like a leaf And our iniquities, like the wind, carry us away. We've had a lot of dry winds recently, and we know what this imagery conveys and what it looks like and feels like. Our sin makes us light and unstable, as though we would blow away. And what is the fundamental problem? It is not horizontal, but it's vertical. Isaiah says, we don't rouse ourselves enough to take hold of God. And that is true of all of us. Friends, I I was thinking about this yesterday. We stir up ourselves for our jobs, our hobbies, our home improvement projects, our vacations, our Christmas parties. We rouse ourselves for those events and those things, those priorities. But we don't lay a hold of God as we are meant to and as we must. And so what does that mean? Again, Such powerful imagery here. Verse 7, we so often melt in the hand of our iniquities. Wow. We often melt in the hand of our iniquities. In other words, our sin becomes its own consequence. As the old cartoon strip said, we have met the enemy and he is us. (laughs) And so this passage says that Our rebellion brings about the anger of God against humanity's sin, against our sin. And Paul in Ephesians 2 says that as we live as the sons of disobedience, like the sons of disobedience, under the prince of the power of the air, we were all by nature children of wrath. Now this all is kind of heavy, heavy themes on the first Sunday of Advent, but that's the point. It is preparing us for our awareness of what Jesus had to do for us. The scholar Fleming Rutledge, reflecting on Isaiah and the first Sunday of Advent, she wrote this, skimming the headlines of violence and abuse, 
she asks. Do we want a world without the wrath of God? Without God's anger? Without God's anger, there is no hope of justice. And she goes on to say, what we are intended to feel is not intellectual curiosity about Christianity or these, all these Advent themes, but the overwhelming gravity and solemnity of the picture of the whole world called to judgment before the throne of Christ. We are not simply celebrating a sweet, cute baby being born, but the King and the Judge of all the earth who has come and is coming again. Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And yet, friends, in Christ, God revealed not only His judgment, of course, but His mercy. The God who rends the heavens and comes against sin also descends in love by dying for sinners. John 3, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting, eternal life. And the important follow-up, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Judgment, final judgment is coming, but we celebrate that in the first advent, salvation has come. And so the God who is just, who must punish sin, is also the God who justifies, who took our punishment, who died in our place. You see, Isaiah 64 prophesies the return of a remnant people to Israel. It talks about them going back into the land. But the bigger picture, the greater promise is so much vaster than that. It is about people from all over the world turning to Israel's Messiah. A scholar who helped me so much when I was in seminary trying to figure this all out and having my doubts um, and reading the Scripture in a new way. Her name is uh, Elizabeth Actemeyer, and she wrote beautifully, Jesus Christ is the merciful love of God made flesh in the answer to all of our prayers for rescue. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. He has appeared, and He will appear again. And so we long for God to come, but we also long for our Father to shape us. Verse 8 says, But now, O Lord, You are the potter and we are the clay. You are our compassionate Father. You are the sovereign artist. And You don't lay Your hands on us to harm us, but to heal us, God. And to make us more like the people You want us to be, which actually fulfills us. It makes us more human. And God compassionately, mercifully takes us sometimes through hardship, friends, not to destroy us, but to build us up so that we would become less self-sufficient and more reliant on Christ. I'm learning this. And many of you are learning this. But God shapes us in, in very specific ways. I wanted to share 
sort of generically a, an account in my life about the potter and the clay and how we are clay in God's hands. God shaped a relationship and is doing that for me um, even recently. And this relationship, I would say for years, had some puzzlement, I guess I would call it, and disappointment. And some of you know what that's about. Like, something can just feel a little askew sometimes. And maybe it was egos, maybe perceptions, false perceptions. Maybe it was different personalities, uh, different gift sets. Perhaps we were too busy with our separate lives to connect. But... We are both believers, and our Heavenly Father hasn't given up on us. He is shaping us. And over the past few years, and even in the past few months, we have been wonderfully encouraging to each other in our faith and in our lives. And I would say that, by God's grace, our dynamics are lovely. <laughs> and I see the potter shaping us, shaping me, shaping this person. God is at work in our lives. He is rending the heavens and coming down to work in you and me to change our relationships, to change our attitudes, to change our actions. And I want you to note the contrast that is so powerful. In our sin, Isaiah says, we melt in the hand of our own iniquities. That's verse 7. But in the potter's hand, we become more flourish, uh, human. We flourish. We become whom we are meant to be. And friends, even in the hard stuff you're going through, the cancer you didn't choose, the relationship that feels a bit askew as you go into the holiday season, in all of these challenges, God lovingly uses even those hard times to shape you and me as people, as His people. And Isaiah makes it clear that we are God's people. A few months ago, I baptized my grandson, Thomas, uh, up in, I in Idaho. And his name is Thomas Jack. Grandpa has renamed him Sir Thomas. Uh, they will be here in church next week. So just remember, his name's Sir Thomas. <laughs> and uh, this morning when we baptized Hadley, I was reminded of the powerful truth again that when we bring our children and our grandchildren to the Lord, God is marking them as His own. We say in baptizing them, God, as Isaiah says, look, we are Your people. We commit ourselves, we commit our children to You. They belong to You in soul and in body. And friends, we know as adults, I felt this so powerfully when I, when I baptized Thomas, oh little one, there will be great times, but there will be deep, dark valleys. But may God rend the heavens and use everything in their lives, in our lives, perhaps especially the deepest valleys, to deepen there in our relationship with Him. To make us rely more fully on Him. So in this time between the two advents of Christ, we wait with expectant longing. Verse 4 says, No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for Him. And so that's what we do. Come to God honestly. Repent. 
and recall his awesome deeds. He is molding you. He has torn the heavens by sending his son to be born as a babe in a manger. He will tear the heavens by returning as redeemer, judge, and king of all things. And he will be acknowledged as such, either with joyful gladness or with terror. And so pray in this season of the already and not yet. Desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease, and fill the whole world with heaven's peace. Or as we heard earlier, Christ is coming. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would use these passages in Isaiah that we're looking at, these four Sundays of Advent, and that you would prepare us, not only for the meaning and the power of your first coming, but for the great reality of your second coming. And in this in-between time, between the already and not yet, we pray that that you would mold us, that you would be the potter and, and treat us as your clay. And God, we thank you that as you lay your hands on us, as it were, you do so not to harm us or, dest- or to destroy us, but to make us more human, more fully ourselves as your people. We pray this for ourselves, for our kids, for our grandkids. Help us to know and we say to you, we are your people. And God, I pray that we would know that though our, even our best deeds are tainted with sin, we thank you that you have come to deal with our sin and that when we strive to follow you in the power of the Spirit, you accept our obedience as delightful and pleasing to you on account of Jesus. So Father, we thank you that the heavens have been torn apart and that Jesus has come and we thank you that he will come again. And we pray in this Advent season that we would think not only of our own growth in you and life in you, but that we would share this good news with others. In a world that is torn by strife and worry and hatred, terrorism and the like, we pray that the peace of Jesus would come into hearts and that it would come rule this world. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.